Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Mike Belchie, welcome back to Real Vision Crypto. Hey, Ash, good to see you again. How are you? It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, we've got you on the show here today. We've got a little bit of a Bitcoin mini rally going. I don't know if we can bring up the chart, uh, but pretty positive price action over the last 24 hours. Uh, on my screen, looks like it's up, uh, call it about uh, just under 3%. Lots going on. And in the meantime, in the background here, Mike, I've got uh, Chair Gary Gensler going on mute uh, on the live feed, testifying down on the hill. All right. Lots going on. Yeah, lots going on indeed. Mike, let's do the 50,000-foot overview, uh, what you see happening. Obviously, a lot of things happening in the space right now. As always, a lot of innovation, but also a lot of regulatory and legal talk right now happening. Uh, what's your perspective on what's happening right now? Sure. Well, the good the good news is that you know the, the regula regulators have woken up um, in the post-FTX era and really started to take a look at how to to bring digital assets you know kind of in into the fold the bad news is that there's a lot of confusion about that in particular here in the us um and so it's causing a lot of uncertainty actually in the markets now uh with the macro backstop not related to crypto you know governments around the world are still tinkering with interest rates kind of recovering from the covid you know money prints and that is going uh with mixed results and you know bitcoin the price is, is up in the last few months is really beneficiary of that. So one thing is kind of on the macro angle, you know, Bitcoin is doing exactly what Bitcoin was designed to do. It's a bit of a, a counterinflation uh, hedge, and it is in some cases starting to look a little decorrelated, uncorrelated from the rest of the markets, which is very uh, exciting. I don't know if it's going to stick completely, but um, when you stop tinkering with market interest rates, um, it turns out markets can do what markets do, and you can start to see, you know, exactly how Bitcoin has advantages or not. And then, then the regulatory side uh, is kind of really related to the post-FTX saga, uh, where lots going on uh, here and abroad. Hey, let's talk a little bit about this macro backdrop. I know it's something that you've been thinking about, something you've been writing about, something you've been speaking about. Give us a little context on what's happening and why you believe we see the directionality that we do in prices. What's the tie into macro policy? Sure. So in the last couple of years, we've seen massive money printing. Um, and this is, you know, lined the pockets of investors that start putting assets to work and they start investing in everything and and, and all assets go up and we've seen this in the uh, in the stock market as just goes up and up and up seemingly forever until it doesn't and you know in the last you know nine months the fed has finally started tightening rates because interest starts to to, to raise its head and as they increase those interest rates 
all of a sudden that free cash that people were applying to all kinds of investments, including high-risk investments, uh, dries up. And so the markets look actually to, to some degree more normal because you don't have this artificial cash that's, that's uh, floating around everywhere. So this is where they're tinkering. The problem is, is that we've got inflation as a result of having done massive, massive money prints. Um, that's going to take time to dissipate into the system. Um, could be years. And in the meantime, you've got politics going on. Uh, you know, those want to have good markets or well-performing markets. Nobody wants to be residing over uh, a recession. So they fight over what the definition of a recession is. Um, and uh, in the meantime, you know, Bitcoin, you know, what is the attribute of Bitcoin? Bitcoin is a monetary policy, which was set back in you know, 2008 when Bitcoin was, was created. It is now the longest running monetary policy without human intervention, uh, without tinkering uh, ever in the history of mankind. We've never had a monetary policy that's been as static and consistent. So you can like it, you can hate it, but it definitely doesn't change. And because of that, it starts to see attributes that are different from other markets, which very much, of course, do change um, as people change their minds about, about how to uh, administer them. Boy, that's so interesting. I've never really heard it discussed that way before, this idea that Bitcoin is the longest running monetary policy in history. Uh, you're referring to the hard cap, the $21 million supply, uh, 21 million Bitcoin supply, I should say, uh, that is uh, sort of immutable, at least uh, in the code base today and also in the culture, the ethos, and in the minds of the people who care about Bitcoin, who love Bitcoin. Uh, that is really interesting. If you look at the history of fiat currency uh, on a long enough time scale, at least, it's always the history of debasement and manipulation. That's right. You know, humans, you know, we, we, we try to make things better. It can be well-intentioned. Sometimes it's not well-intentioned. You know, you can look at history, but, you know, we tend to change things. And, um, you know, we think we're doing it for whatever reason, but it, it has really difficult to predict um, impacts uh, in terms of all of the people that are using that currency. So, you know, Bitcoin is a little bit like gold. People have thought of gold as kind of a static supply. It turns out gold's not actually a completely static supply. You know, they pull out about 2% of you know, uh, more, more gold every year. Um, and there's some trying to mine gold off of asteroids, which they suppose could greatly impact the supply of gold if that ever succeeds. Um, but Bitcoin actually is, is the, the only one that's actually perfect in terms of matching exact production with the, uh, with the theory and the, um, the policy that was set forth. So it can't be changed. And that, that is the feature of Bitcoin. It's very, very interesting. Yeah, I should say, before I sound too radical, uh, the reality is that we've had very moderate inflation here in the United States for most of my life, certainly. Uh, obviously, hyperinflation in the 1970s, uh, or at least exaggerated inflation. I don't know if it qualifies technically as hyperinflation, but very high inflation, certainly painful inflation in the 1970s for people who are old enough uh, to remember it. But again, on a long enough time scale, uh, for people who look at this historically, you always see this nature uh, of some of the challenges uh, that we're maybe, maybe beginning to see right now, which is these political trade-offs as, as sort of political animals that human beings uh, engage in uh, that increase the well, price. Go ahead. Yeah. You're sort of right. Um, I think we have been beneficiaries of, you know, a couple of decades here in the U.S. of having relatively low inflation, but it hasn't been as low as it seems. You know, they've been tinkering with the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, all the way through. Um, whenever it's convenient to make it so that it looks like inflation is, is under control. You can look at the long time period and you can see that the, act, the actual amount of debasement that's happened. The other thing is the U.S. is and, and has been for the last several decades, you know, 60 to 70 percent of the global reserves, uh, reserve currencies of the world. And 
that is a tremendous benefit. The U.S. has been very effective at exporting dollars to other countries, which effectively increases the demand, right? So that helps keep inflation low because the supply gets spread over a very, very large base. Um, so I'm not sure we've really had uh, great in, in, uh, in really low inflation when you really look at kind of in real terms what's been happening globally um, and then also with tinkering in the numbers. Mike, you're a tech guy. How did you go down this macro rabbit hole? For people who don't know, we should, we should probably give a little bit of background and context uh, about your work at Google, your work in developing mm -hmm. uh, the standards that the World Wide Web, the, WW2, the, the Web 2 uh, is based on. Talk a little bit about that and then this transition that you made uh, into the thinking about monetary policy and the relationship of technology to macroeconomics. Well, I am, I am trained as a, a software engineer. I've been, been into computers since I was very, very young. I spent the bulk of my career uh, as an engineer, engineering manager uh, at a number of you know, companies, tech startups usually, but spent a, lot, a disproportionate amount of that time in, in the web browser space and search space and uh, did a number, number of things there. Uh, overall, I, I think that I am a bit of a, I have an entrepreneurial spirit. I like to build things from scratch um, and uh, I like to innovate. And I think I've tried to pick problems that are going to have big global impacts. So, you know, early in, in the mid nineties, that was kind of the, the web 1.0 generation. Um, by the time we got to, I guess, web 2.0, I was in the middle of that as, as well. Bitcoin, when I finally discovered it was clearly something that is going to change the way we do money. And I, like many others, didn't really have a good grasp of what money is, which is, you know, it's funny, like we all spend so much time thinking about money. Um, and I do remember watching Eric Forkey's talk, I don't know, back in 2012 or whatever it was. So articulately talking about what are the unique attributes of money that, that, we, that we need. And when you start to realize, wait a minute, this system that we have that we never really think about why it is the way it is. It's just like rules that have been given to us that have been developed and in, inherited over, over decades and centuries. Um, we actually can change them with software. Um, and that's what got, got me excited. So it's very much the technolo technological innovation um, that got me excited into to digital assets and crypto. Um, and with that, well, this is money. So you got to start learning about money. So th you can call it the rabbit hole. You can call it, you know, kind of never ending intellectual curiosity. Um, but if you have inter intellectual curiosity about how things work, I think it'll lead you to, you know, go going deep down paths and, and starting to understand how th things work better. So yes, I know more about financial markets than I ever thought I, I would. Um, I certainly had never intended to be a banker. And yet here we are, you know, uh, I guess we're running the fastest growing uh, crypto custodian in history. Um, but um, it's all just part of the job to make it so that software can do what software does, which is it helps us completely upend uh, the way that traditional systems work and help us build new systems. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Well, we certainly love never-ending intellectual curiosity here at Real Vision Crypto. Let's talk a little bit about this uh, place that you're in, uh, talking about money uh, and innovation. What are you guys doing on the software front over at Bitcoin? I know that you're interested in developing wallets uh, and using some of the new technology that's coming online in the Web3 space. Tell us a little bit about that effort and the importance of innovation in what you do. Sure. Well, the importance of innovation, let's start there. Like we're just barely scratching the surface on what can happen with digital assets. So we've talked about Bitcoin a little bit on this, this show already. And you know, Bitcoin's role is that it can actually be 
the new type of money with a static policy that doesn't change much. But it's not very good at you know smart contracts and you know things that diverge from that store of value type of use case. It hasn't cracked the nut on payments yet, and I think more innovation will, will come there. But blockchains and the transparency that they bring, there's a ton that we can do here. So I'm very excited about what's happening with DeFi. I'm excited about what's happening with stable coins. I'm excited about what's happening with identity. We start to see digital property. You know, NFTs have been the first manifestation there. All of these are just early, uh, early products that are coming out. I mean, it's kind of like the products that came out in the late 90s. A lot of them died, by the way. There's a lot of experimentation going on. Some of some of those experiments will fail. Some of the experiments are going to be the most interesting haven't even started yet. So one of the important things, if you're in the digital asset space, you have to be able to keep up with innovation. Um, so you, you can't get big and, and, and be happy with the wallet platform that you built you know, from 10 years ago. You have to constantly be looking at like, wait, how is the, how is the industry changing? How can we add more, more product and service? For BitGo, this led us down, I think, two different paths. Um, which we are prosecuting both. But one is, all right, this is money. It's regulated, right? It's important that we have a super high degree of compliance. We've got a lot of skeptical people out there. We have to, we have to be better at doing compliance and regulation than any traditional bank has ever had to be because there's so much skepticism about what we do. But that's, that's the bar we do. And so that leads us down a regulated path that doesn't sound very innovative, um, but it actually turns out it, it kind of is. So. When you look at markets and the way that they work in the US, whether you're talking about equities, whether you're talking about derivatives, the CFTC, you will see market structure. You will see exchanges, you will see broker dealers, you will see clearing houses, and they have roles. We don't have that in digital assets today. It's right. getting, and so where we're spending a lot of time right now, actually for BitGo is with regard to settlements. So we are a regulated custodian here in the United States in two different, two different trust companies, one in South Dakota, one in New York. Um, interesting topic there about what's the best way to be regulated for that type of activity. But custodians can do settlement types of things, escrow types of things. This is natural to what we do. Um, we also have abroad. We have Germany. We have Switzerland, um, Singapore coming soon. So we're doing this both local and abroad. And on the settlement front, how do you just be able to settle, you know, basically bulk trades uh, that are happening across the planet 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Remember the existing banking system runs Monday through Friday, nine to five. Doesn't, doesn't work well when you've got a 24 seven market. So we've got to build uh, uh, settlement clearing capabilities that can handle that impedance mismatch. And that's what we're doing. Um, we've had a lot, we call it the Go Network. It's got mechanisms where you can keep assets in deep cold storage and yet trade them on exchanges um, without having to move them onto exchanges. We've got ways that exchanges can settle uh, inside of BitGo between each other, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, both fiat and crypto. We learned a lot from the Silvergate, you know, um, episode. Some people blame crypto for that. I blame the regulators for that. The, the problem we had is instead of having a hundred banks, each handling a hundred percent, each handling about 1% of, of the crypto fiat volume, we had one bank handling a hundred percent of the crypto fiat volume. And that led to concentration risk. Um, as and with, if you've got a bank with 90% of its revenue coming from uh, a single industry, it doesn't matter whether it's crypto or autos or anything else, if that industry loses confidence in that bank, for whatever reason, you can have a run on the bank. It's exactly what we saw. Um, this is fixable and we know how to fix it, um, but it's gotta be built. So that's one side that we're building. The other let side- me Let me jump in there and just, just because there's, there's so much. 
to discuss it. It's so, it's so important. You know, it's it's interesting. Obviously, uh, when we're talking about this, we we just went from speaking the language of software development uh, to speaking the language of banking. You know, early in my career, I worked in credits at Credit Suisse uh, doing uh, doing fintech work there. When you talk about things like clearing and settlement and custodian, these are definitely banking terms. Let's talk a little bit about this in the context and and how this evolves. You know, you mentioned this idea of the experimentation that's happening in the crypto space. We've all seen times uh, where the experience of where the experiments have not only failed, but the test tubes have blown up and burned the lab down. Uh, you know, one of the most notable of those, of course, is uh, the FTX implosion. And and one of the things that we saw there was kind of a, if I guess if you want to translate it into software terms, you, you sort of had the software stack of uh, of different operating entities kind of compressed, where when you looked at the things that FTX did in many ways, I'm not, it, it, I'm not saying these were legal definitions, but it certainly looked like it was serving the purpose of a, you know, a qualified custodian, a hedge fund, uh, an investment bank, uh, I don't know, a swaps agent. I mean, you could literally just go down the list. It was all happening in-house. Uh, in the traditional financial space, all of these are disaggregated. They're all unpacked into different layers, uh, often with different companies controlling those functionalities. And it serves as a, a kind of a safeguard, almost as a fire break. So if you have an issue in one of them, uh, it doesn't just spread like wildfire throughout the entire system. Talk a little bit about that, how you see this ecosystem getting built out uh, and how you see this maturing so that we have some of those safeguards uh, without necessarily creating some of the bureaucracy that maybe we, we see in the traditional banking system. Sure. Well, first off, FTX was a very simple cause. Massive fraud. Okay. And massive fraud is not crypto. Massive fraud is humans. Um, a lot of what we're building in digital assets is very transparent, decentralized types of products. The FTX product, although we, many of us thought, you know, and self-included to some degree, thought that they were operating kind of with those ethos and principles. That guy was just a fraud like Bernie Madoff. And there will be frauds in the future. Now- We, we, should, we should say, of course, in, innocent until proven guilty. He's, he's been indicted, uh, uh, but the trial has not yet occurred. And this is gonna be something that, that gets worked out in a, in a court of law, uh, hopefully with some transparency. And we're gonna understand this process a little bit better. Uh, but to your point- But- um, but you're right. He won't go to jail until it's proven. But it will be proven. We we know what we know what happened here. This is this is massive fraud and didn't have anything to do with crypto. That part of it. But you can st still further break down and have some lessons from FTX. So FTX actually had kind of had two houses. It had the Alameda Research component, which right. was sometimes that's called a hedge fund. It's really more of a prop trading firm. Um, that's that's an area that we have many uh, similar examples in traditional finance. You know, Bill Huang's Archegos. Uh, famously blew up a couple of years ago, had nothing to do with crypto, you know, hedge funds, prop trading firms, these and, take- And by the way, had an impact on Credit Suisse, who was considerably <laughs> exposed to precisely that. Poor, poor Credit Suisse, uh, not, not around anymore. Um, but uh, that's right. right. So, uh, uh, you know, those types of, of entities like Alameda, they're institutional investors. You know, they want to take high risk with their stuff. They're allowed to take high risk. And if they lose it, nobody really cares. Um, that part was okay. Now, FTX had a second part, which was FTX the exchange. And FTX the exchange was operating, as you pointed out, as, as a fully aggregated set of functions as opposed to disintermediated functions. So instead right. of having an exchange separate from the broker, separate from the clearing, they did all of these things. Um, now, this is where you know, U.S. markets, and the U.S. markets have done a good job Generally, I, I think we can go faster and be more innovative. But you know, the the U.S. markets are looked to around the world as you know more stable 
consistent, predictable markets than other places, in part because we have rules about how you participate that protect against basic um, manipulation of the markets. I'm not saying it's perfect, but at least it's better than a lot of other countries. Now, in those markets, the reason we have market structure is because in order for us to have good trading, we have to know the risks that are going on in the markets, and those things are supposed to be low risk. Exchanges don't participate in leverage, right? Like the NASDAQ, and NYC, these don't, that doesn't happen there, right? Broker-dealers, they can extend some leverage, they can do some credit, but under certain sets of controls, how they have backstops for it, et cetera, and then clearing, you know, and then through the equities world, it's a little bit different, it all lands down to the DTCC. Um, by the way, the DTCC is just a state-chartered New York trust, right? Kind of like Bitco, um, not too different. Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. So just for people who don't know, Depository Trust Corporation, this is the, the entity that ultimately uh, takes a big role in uh, the custodial uh, aspect and also clearing and settling US equities. Basically 99%, or I think it's even higher than that, of all US equities are actually custodied at the DTC, which is one half of the DTCC. Um, so, but anyway, this market structure, we expect to be uh, low risk and well understood risk and regulators step in to make sure that the operators of those different functions, whether you're a broker dealer and exchange or whatnot, um, uh, abide by certain rules so that everyone else can look at those markets in a very consistent, stable way. And we want to have good trading markets. That's a huge part of having you know, a democratic, you know, capitalist economy. So let's talk a little bit about what's happening right now in the United States. Uh, there's certainly a perception, particularly in the crypto space, that we are seeing uh, a regulatory tightening cycle uh, happen in the United States. Obviously, uh, you just have to go and uh, turn on uh, financial news, and it seems as though every day uh, you have uh, a new uh, case being filed by SEC uh, or CFTC against an entity operating in the crypto space. Just yesterday, we had uh, Bittrex. Uh, give us a little bit of context about how you see that process unfolding right now. So digital assets do have uh, a lot of new capabilities we've never seen before. Um, there's also some things that are happening globally, which you know are people taking advantage of an early system and trying to abuse it. But in general, um, this is a great period in time. We have needed the regulators to kind of step in along with legislators and say, this is how I want to operate these markets and define the rules. Um, the good players, the Coinbase's and the BitGo's and the, uh, the regulated folks here in the United States all just want to know what the rules are and we're absolutely, we're going to abide by those rules. Um, but the rules haven't been as clear as they need to be because digital assets open up new opportunities. And you know, right now with the SEC, there's a lot of debate about what's a security and what's not a security. Um, one simple way to go is say, hey, they're all securities. But they're not. Um, that's that's uh, intellectually dishonest to say that these things are all just the same. Um, but how we regulate them does have to be defined. So I think that's being sorted out now. Uh, I think there's going to be some mistakes, some bugs. You know, every industry creates bugs. We tend to call them software bugs. But lawyers create bugs. Regulators create bugs. Legislators create bugs. And then we have to fix them. So it's going to take a couple iterations. In general, it's great that this is starting now. We knew 10 years ago that ultimately there would be a, uh, a conflict 
where we start to figure out how to bring these into traditional markets. But the good news is once you get through that, we have better markets than we've ever had before. You know, one of the risks here that people uh, have raised in terms of what's happening in the United States with the regulatory tightening cycle that we're seeing is this risk, this fear that there is going to be a flight offshore and the United States is going to lose its global competitiveness in a key industry. Obviously, for people who have been paying attention in the last 20 years, Silicon Valley has just generated an enormous amount of growth for the economy here in the U.S., what are the risks and what are you hearing from your clients vis-a-vis uh, -vis locating here in the United States or wanting to do business elsewhere? Well, we talk with clients both U.S. and abroad. We do about half our business here in the U.S., but half of it out. Uh, I was talking with a, a major uh, bank, international bank, just uh, uh, late last week, I think it was. And they're, they're trying to understand how they're going to interface with digital assets. Now, they're ready to go. Um, and is a major, major brand. And they're trying to figure out, do they want to work you know, with some of the US regu regulatory constructs or they want to work with the frameworks outside the US? And you know, they want to hear about how all this works, but they've already decided, they know that the US today, to anyone that's outside the US, looks like the most uncertain market for digital assets pretty much anywhere. Um, so everybody's saying, well, let's just stay out of the US until the US figures this thing out. And it's looking like it's going to take a few years for the US to figure it out. The other thing that, that people are acutely aware of is that this has changed from a regular, regulatory topic to a political topic. Um, I'll give you an example. You know, say what you will about you know, the previous administration of this. I'm not trying to be political myself. I'm just trying to point out that the stance of the OCC, which is the, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency that regulates all the banks, the federal banks here in the United States, um, completely changed its tune on digital assets from the prior administration to this one. Not a single law was passed, nothing changed. And now the regulator is taking a complete opposite interpretation of whether they should embrace or not embrace digital assets. So it's a political thing that's happening, which changes the regulations. Now as a business person, here's what I want. Tell me what the rules are. I'm gonna do the rules and, and we'll be done and we'll move on. We'll go build great business and we'll build great economies. But if the administrative change without any other written change causes the interpretation of the exact same rules to be completely bipolar opposite from it, you know, it makes it a very difficult place. And outside the US, our clients absolutely see this political turmoil that's going on inside the US and it makes them say, let's stay out until that thing is sorted out. Um, so I think this is a big problem for the US right now. Uh, you know, Bitco, uh, we're, we're lucky we invested internationally some time ago. And so we have options. Uh, I saw just this week, Coinbase is also saying, hey, we don't have to keep our headquarters in the US um, if this isn't going to work out. So um, lastly, I think the de-dollarization that's going on, look, China is here to support whatever will help with de-dollarization. Um, I'm not one of the people that thinks that we're going to see, you know, hyperinflation and massive de-dollarization de you know, overnight, but it is happening. It's a trend that's happening. Um, and we saw China change its stance, or I should say Hong Kong change its stance on crypto uh, just in the last couple of weeks here. That doesn't happen without Beijing giving its uh, explicit approval for that to happen. Why are they doing that? I think they are seeing a window where digital assets, Bitcoin, can actually help with the de-dollarization effort. And in spite of their needs for tight capital controls, which China has always had, they are willing to now help digital assets grow in Hong Kong. Um, so look, 
the U.S. needs to get its act together very quickly, um, or this can have multiple types of impacts in terms of why business won't happen here. Really interesting and very sobering thoughts. Uh, Mike, we always cover a lot of ground in these conversations. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners and viewers with? Well, overall, we talk about a lot of, you know, seemingly negative things with digital assets and regulatory uncertainty. And, you know, it could leave a lot of people thinking like, ah, maybe I'll just stay out of that industry too. Um, look, I actually think it's an incredibly bullish time for, for digital assets. Uh, these recessionary times tend to be when the great innovative companies, you know, emerge. Um, and, you know, a few years later, it'll be obvious, like Amazon, like Google, companies that came out of periods that were otherwise very difficult periods. Um, but moreover, you know, given what's happening at the macro level, like every single person on the planet needs to be starting to think about how they're going to interface with digital assets. Um, you know, it used to be that we said you need to have one to 2% of your net worth in digital assets. These days, I would say at least 5%. Um, and it's just clear the monetary policies of the humans are very weak right now and they are uncertain and they're causing turmoil in the markets. Um, it is true that if you put 5% in the Bitcoin, that could go to zero. That's true. Um, but I think given that it's run for over a decade now, um, given that the rules are very clear and consistent, you're actually much more likely to see that become the bulk of your uh, portfolio a few years from now than the, the, the zero in your portfolio. Mike, always a fantastic conversation when you join us. Thank you so much for coming back to Real Vision Crypto. Thank you. That's it for today. Remember to sign up for Real Vision Crypto. It's free. Go to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. Tomorrow, I'll be joined by two execs, uh, CVVC, following the publication of their report on blockchain development in Africa. Join us live at 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern, or 5 p.m. if you're in London. Thanks for watching, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.